We are in week two of a series called Life in the Arena, and we're looking at what it means when our obedience means defiance, right? What does our life look like when obedience to God, obedience to His Word, walking as a, as a kingdom citizen means we live in defiance toward the world and toward the culture? Because being obedient to Jesus has always and will always come at a cost. If your relationship with Jesus doesn't cost you anything, you're probably not walking with him because it comes at a cost. God's word says this all over the place. In Psalm 34, it says in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. That God's people, his righteous people are going to experience many afflictions. Now we love the second part of that verse where it says, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. I love that part. I don't like the first part, but it's in there. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Jesus himself told us, In John uh, 16, he said, in the world, you will have tribulation. In John 15, he said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Why? Because as our culture moves and shifts further and further away from God, living a life that is authentically and deeply committed to Jesus is going to be more and more difficult. That's just the reality we're going to navigate. And so we're going to be back in the book of Daniel this morning. We were there last week in chapter 3 looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this week we are looking at um, Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 6, looking at one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, and that is Daniel and the den of lions. Now, I grew up in Sunday school and going to vacation Bible school. Who else? If you're, you grew up kind of doing the Sunday school, Bible school thing. All right, here's the deal. We learned a version of Daniel and of this story that really wasn't quite accurate. It didn't paint the right picture. Everything I learned about Daniel uh, painted him in this moment as a young man, and the lions were like his buddies. So all my pictures, they look like this, right? Daniel was like, ah, the the next one is one I remember. Ah, got your nose. You know what I mean? That's just just not real, okay? That's the version I learned of Daniel in the lion's den. He went down in there. They had a picnic. They were buddies, and he was petting them and riding them and and, and gave them all names and all. That's the version of Daniel I learned. But here's the truth. That's not quite accurate, and here's why. By this time... When we get to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is not a young man. Uh, Scholars believe he's between 80 and 85 years old. He's on his third king. He's gone through three kings. So I want you to remember Daniel's story. He was abducted as a teenager, somewhere between 15 and 17 years old. He was removed from his home and his family and his friends and everything that he has known, and he was taken to Babylon, and now he has lived the bulk of his life, some 65 to 70 years as an exile, as an exile in in this land where he does not belong. And yet, despite those circumstances, Daniel has remained faithful to God. He has leveraged his life to make a kingdom impact right there. And listen, just like Daniel, we are living as exiles in the world we live in today. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that. Peter says we are sojourners and exiles. Jesus in John chapter 17 teaches us that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. He says my people are not of this world, so we are exiles. We are citizens of the kingdom of God living in the kingdom of this world, which means what? That we, like Daniel, 
God wants for us to live our lives leveraging them to make a kingdom impact. Making a kingdom impact in our culture. So what does that look like? What does it look like for us to remain faithful to Jesus in a culture that does not know him, doesn't love him? What does it look like for us to allow God to use us as agents of change in the world around us? And there's four phrases that I think emerge from this story with Daniel that um, kind of help define the life of Daniel. And we're going to use these four phrases because they're going to answer those questions for us of what does this look like, but also because these four markers should define us as well. They should define us as well. So grab your Bible, go to Daniel chapter 6. Let me kind of catch you up. I told you Daniel was on his third king. There's been a regime change. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3, he was pretty sure that Babylon would be there forever. It would never fall. And the thing he thought would never and could never happen has happened, which is uh, Babylon has been overtaken by the kingdom of Persia, by the Medes and the Persians. They have come in, and now they're running everything. And at the end of chapter 5, we meet a man named Darius the Mede, all right? And um, the real king at this time, the real person in power is the king of Persia. His name is Cyrus. But Cyrus had a vast kingdom. Now it included Babylon. And so he took Darius and placed him as king over Babylon, and so um, now Darius is in place as the ruler. It's Daniel's third king. There's a whole other nation that's running things now. And let's look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Now there was a reason that Cyrus had set Darius over the kingdom of Babylon because uh, biblical scholars believe, based on ancient writings, that Darius was actually uh, a genius when it came to leadership and organizational leadership. He was a very thoughtful guy, a highly administrative person. And you see this in kind of how he begins to set up a government. So he sets 120 satraps, which, by the way, weird word. Everybody just say satraps. Satraps. Doesn't that just feel weird in your mouth? It doesn't make sense, right? Here's what these guys were. Satraps were what they called um, kingdom warriors, kingdom guardians, if you will. They were like governors. And he took 120 of them, spread them out all over Babylon, and above them he put three overseers. So the nation reported to the satraps, the satraps reported to the overseers, and the overseers reported to the king. You kind of see... You'll flow there. And Daniel is one of these overseers, very powerful position that he is in. And look at what it says next in verse 3. And then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now right here we see this first defining marker in the life of Daniel, and it is this. Daniel was excellent in his work. He was excellent in his work. Look at verse 3 again. Then, these then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. Why? Because an excellent spirit was in him. Daniel stood out, and he stood out so much among his peers and the other rulers that the king had planned to put him over everybody. 
So now instead of the satraps going to the three, they were going to go to a new three and the three were going to go to Daniel and Daniel would go to the king. He was about to be over the whole thing. And why is it, why does the Bible say Daniel had distinguished himself this way? It says that an excellent spirit was in him. Now, what does that mean? That he have like a separate spirit that I don't have that just made him awesome? Like what, what is that? No, that simply means that Daniel took his job seriously and he worked with excellence. That's what it means. It means being excellent in what he did mattered to him. He didn't cut corners. He worked hard. He did a, he did a good job. He made the people around him and the organization better. He had a good attitude and he had a strong work ethic. And this is the pattern that you see in Daniel's life from the moment he arrives in Babylon. As a 15 or 16-year-old young man, from that moment when he arrives in Babylon, you see this commitment to excellence in his work. This was a rhythm that he kept because, here's why, Daniel understood from a young man to now an old man that in what he did, he represented God and God's people. He understood that. That Daniel didn't walk out the door and just represent himself. He represented God, and he represented God's people, which, went, which meant the way he worked, how he treated people. The example he set was going to be a reflection on the God he served. When you step out into your workplace, you do not step out just carrying your name. You carry the banner of the name of God who you claim as Lord and Savior, which means how you work, how you treat people, and the example you set is a reflection on the God you serve. So for Daniel, here's what that meant. His standard had to be different. It wasn't good enough that he just worked like everybody else. It wasn't good enough that he did the right thing one time. It wasn't good enough to do just enough to get by. He worked different because the God he served was different. And he was filled with a God who gave him a different vision and a different um, drive and a different momentum because he had different desires. And God honored that spirit of excellence that was in him. He had favor in everything that he did. In Daniel chapter 1, it says, because of the way he lived, Daniel had favor with the chief eunuch. So he immediately found favor. In Daniel chapter 2 and 5 and 6, what we discover is God has prospered him so much that there is no one above Daniel except the king himself. God uses this commitment to excellence in Daniel's work to grow him and to prosper him and to trust him with more and more and more. Why? So that he could increase the platform where Daniel lived out the gospel and declared God's glory. Excellence in your work expands the platform for God to demonstrate his glory in your life. For him to demonstrate what it looks like to live different and to work different. If we want to make a kingdom impact in our culture, that's what we want to do. The most practical way we can do that is to pursue excellence in our work. That's just the most, it's where we spend most of our time. Most of us spend more time at work than we do with our own families. And the most practical way that we can make a kingdom impact is in this place. Why? Because as believers, we carry and we represent the very nature and character of God. That's when we walk out the door, this is what we carry. 
You know, I've told my children almost all of their life that there are three things they can be proud of, three, three things they get to hold on to. One, that they are a believer in Jesus Christ, that Jesus has changed them and they belong to him. That is something you hold your head up for. Two, that your last name is Darby. You need to be proud of that. You need to, you, when you step out the door, you square your shoulders, look people in the eye, and, and give them a reason to respect your last name. And three, that you were born in the great state of Texas. You know what I mean? Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, for those of you that weren't, I'm really glad you're here, and I'm sorry you only get two of the three. I am. But you know what? <laughs> What's the point? Why do I tell them that every now and then? Because I want them to remember when they step out the door, it isn't just them that people see. They see the, the Jesus who saved them. They see the family whose name they carry, and that matters. And when we step out the door, we're not just working for ourselves. We are working unto the Lord is what Colossians chapter 2 says. Colossians chapter 2 verse 23, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So for those who belong to Christ, here's what that means. Whatever we do for a living, we do as an act of worship. Do you want to make a kingdom impact? then work as if your vocation is your mission. Boy, that means we got to change how we look at our jobs, don't it? Work as if your vocation is your mission. And you go, listen here, Pastor, you don't know these knuckleheads I work with. Good gosh. You don't know that boss I report to. You don't know the environment that I've got to work in. That sounds great, but it's not real where I work. God's Word says whatever you do. Wherever you go, do it as for the Lord and not for men. Amen. So I said we've got to think about our jobs different. That means we've got to take off the lenses of what, the cult, of what we see, and we have to put these lenses on that remind us not that we have to, um, we have to put on the lenses that remind us God has placed us in that environment. He has placed us with those co-workers. He has placed us under that boss's authority. Why? So that we could be his representation in a culture that doesn't know him. That's why you're there. You're not there to blend in. You are there to raise the banner of the name of Jesus. And that's what we see Daniel doing. So what does it mean to have an excellent spirit? and to be excellent in your work. How about this? Show up early, stay late, work hard, think strategically, have a good attitude, make the organization better, make a good product, great customer service, go the extra mile. Those are the things that we do. And we don't do it for the fame of our name. We do it for the name of Jesus. That's the first thing you see. Look at what it says next in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against um, this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. This is the next defining marker we see, and that is integrity in his walk. 
He was faithful and he was excellent in his work. He had integrity in his walk. Now all of a sudden, Daniel's colleagues are becoming jealous and they're seeking to destroy him. Now I want you to think about it for a moment. Many of these satraps and these overseers and these important people, these were natural-born Babylonians or Persians. And they're going to have a real hard time submitting to this exile who's now been placed in authority over them and reporting to him. And so this isn't a sermon. It's a side note, but it's important. And it's this. When God puts his hand of provision and his hand of blessing over a life lived in obedience. When God puts his hand of blessing over the life that's being lived in obedience there are going to be people who can't handle that. You hear me? There are going to be people who are going to want what you have. There are going to be people who may very well, simply for the sake of trying to see you not have the thing that's missing in their life, try to bring you down. And if you're a student in this room, I just want you to hear me for a moment. So many of you students feel like you live your life under attack because the people around you simply aren't comfortable with who they are, don't know who they are in Christ, and the, the medicine that they put on that wound in their own life is to bring everybody down around them. So students, I want you to just hear me for a moment. You are an image bearer of the Lord God of heaven, and you have an intrinsic value and worth that not another human gets to speak into. And you get to square your shoulders and look people in the eye and say, I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I bear no shame. And the fact that you're uncomfortable with who you are doesn't diminish who God says I am. Now, maybe there's some adults who need to hear that too. But that's what the culture will do when God's hand of blessing and his hand of provision is laid on the life that is walking in obedience. There will be people who cannot handle that. And so what do we do? You stay faithful. You stay obedient. David lived a large portion of his life praying prayers that sounded like this. God, every one of them are trying to kill me, but I trust you. Just read the Psalms. Some of them are amazing, and some of them are like, Lord, I need you to handle those idiots because they're trying to destroy me. I'm hiding in a cave because they're trying to kill me. But I trust you. This is what Daniel was dealing with. And the issue was, <laughs> these satraps, these overseers, the struggle was they couldn't find any fault in them. They couldn't find it. Why? Because this was a man of a high integrity. So what does that mean for you? What does it mean for me? It means this, we don't steal from the office. It means we don't lie to our boss ever about anything. It means we don't fudge on our taxes. It means we don't have any underhanded deals going on. There's no scandals. It means we walk with integrity. Daniel wasn't perfect. But he walked with such a commitment to honoring the Lord in the smallest little areas of his life that these people who were doing all they could to discredit him couldn't find anything. There was integrity in his walk. Every eye was on him. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. From the moment this 15 or 16-year-old kid came into Babylon, he began to advance and all eyes were on him. 
looking for a reason to disqualify him, looking for a reason to discredit him. And now some 70 years later, they still can't find one. 70 years is a long time to watch a life and find no reason for accusation. It's a long time. But is there anybody with me that wants to get to 85 and his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, if he's got those, be able to say, Dad walked with integrity. Mom walked in integrity. I want that. I want that. My kids know I'm not perfect. My grandkids are going to know I'm not perfect. But I want them to know I walked with Jesus and that I walked in integrity. And this is the way Jesus calls us to live. This is how he calls us to do it. Not that we're going to be perfect, we're not, but that we strive to live in such a way that rightly represents Jesus and does not discredit the gospel. That we walk in a way that represents Jesus and doesn't discredit the gospel, which means this, when we mess up, when we fail and we will, when we do that, we admit it, we don't hide it. And when we are failed against, when somebody hurts us in our work, we are the first to extend forgiveness. Why? Because we want to show them what the gospel looks like. We don't hold grudges in our work. We don't hold grudges against our neighbor. We don't hold grudges against the spouse that's hurt us. We don't hold grudges against the parent that hurt us. We let the gospel just be displayed in what we do have integrity in our walk. And this, this kind of integrity is going to look strange to the world. <laughs> They're not going to have a category for this. It's going to look different. You're going to get the side eyes. There's going to be the huddles talking. Um, but look at what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's talking to the Jews now who have been converted, and he's teaching them how to live in and among the Gentiles who don't know God, and he says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's he saying? He's saying live in such a way that when people accuse you, the very integrity of your life is your defense against their accusation. Live that way. Live in such a way that that the lifestyle you live is a testimony against their accusation. So we see that Daniel had integrity in his walk. Here's the third marker we see in Daniel's life. He was faithful in his witness. He was faithful in his witness. Look at verse 5. It said, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. All right, so think about this. These men had tried to find some dirt on Daniel, but he was faithful to Jesus. He was consistent. And they literally said, the only way we're going to get him is in regard to his obedience to God, because we can't find any other place. His life was this living testimony of his devotion to the Lord. You see it later in verse 16 when Darius says, May your God, whom you continually serve, deliver you. He says that again in verse 20. Why? Because Daniel was known for his devotion to the Lord. 
He was consistent in his walk. He was bold in how he talked. If you read Daniel chapter 4 and 5, what you can see was that this man said some very hard things to kings who could have taken his life. But there was faithfulness in his witness. And what the world needs to see more than anything are believers with an authentic faith who are serious and passionate for Jesus. The world needs to see believers who are authentic in their faith, serious and passionate for Jesus. And an authentic faith is best demonstrated in a faithful witness. An authentic faith is best demonstrated. What do I mean by that? If I say I believe it, but I don't live it, and I don't speak it, then have I really been captured by it? I started this sermon by saying some of you need to meet the miracle worker. Some of you check all of the boxes of religion. All of them. And you say you believe Jesus. My question is, does your life reflect it? And are you a witness of it? Because if you ain't living it and you don't speak it, have you really been captured by it? Well, those are hard questions. I know. But they're the right questions. They're the right ones. Daniel witnessed faithfully, both in how he lived, how he spoke regularly of God. He didn't hide it. He didn't diminish it. Why? Because he had been transformed by it. He had been transformed by it. The greatest evidence of the transforming work of the gospel in us, the greatest declaration of an authentic faith that we have been made new in Jesus is that we talk about Jesus. That's the evidence that I live different and I speak different. And I want you to know something, and most of you already know this. The world is watching us. Are you with me? The world's watching. They are taking notice of God's people. And people take notice when they see the real thing. People take notice when they see the real deal. In this story, Daniel's colleagues were very irritated by it. Darius was absolutely fascinated with it, but I want you to know this. Everybody took notice of it. Everybody took notice of it. Our culture is craving authentic people. I honestly believe that we are in a culture who is finally getting sick and tired of the social media versions of ourselves. I do think we are getting to that place. That we are finally getting sick of presenting a version of ourselves that isn't real and seeing a version of everybody else that isn't real. They're looking for something real. They're looking for something authentic. And as believers, we have to live a faith consistently and share a faith faithfully. One of the first ways that someone who has been made new in Christ can have a faithful witness, the very first way, you know what it is? It's baptism. 
That's the first way you get to have a faithful witness of what Jesus has done in your life. I believe there are some of you in this room this morning who have come to faith in Christ. That's happened. If I were to say, where was the moment Jesus changed your life? You'd go, man, right here. But you haven't been baptized since then. You haven't taken that first step of obedience to say, Jesus has changed me. I'm not ashamed, and I want people to know. Listen, if that's you, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. And you go, why? Why is that so important? Well, if you look in the narrative of God's word, in the New Testament, when people came to faith, they didn't wait two days, three weeks, or three years. They got baptized right then. Right then. That's a reason. Here's the greater reason. Because Jesus himself did it. Because Jesus demanded that we do it. And because he did it, because he demanded it, and because he saves us, listen, he deserves our obedience. He did it, he demands it, he deserves it. If you have not been baptized, but you have made Jesus the Lord of your life, there is a table in that foyer, and when this service ends, I need you to go write your name on a little piece of paper. Here's what that's going to do. We're just going to get in touch with you and talk about how to get you ready for baptism. It is the first step of obedience we take as believers. And we're going to have a, a celebration Sunday, next Sunday of baptism, and I don't want you to miss it. So here are these guys. Knowing that they couldn't disqualify Daniel on his work ethic or his character, his integrity, they devised this plan. And here's the plan. Knowing Daniel was going to be faithful to God, they come to King Darius and they kiss up a little bit and they go, okay, King, here's what we think you ought to do. For 30 days, because you're so awesome, you ought to make the whole nation not be able to pray to anybody but you, just you. If they pray, it's got to be to you, nobody else. That's how great you are. They convince Darius to do this. He agrees and he sends out a decree. When the king sent out that decree and he signed it, not even the king could undo it. Right? So the decree goes out, and I want you to see what happens in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, now he knows what's, what the king has said, and now he's got a choice to make. What's he going to do? When he knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Here's the fourth marker. Daniel was defiant in his worship. He was defiant in his worship. He had a life that was defined by being a life of worship. You see this in his prayer life. Prayer is the ultimate expression of worship because it's the act of us humbling ourselves before Jesus in desperation of him and his presence in our life. And I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't tell you worship that is filled with singing and church and life group and serving and is devoid of prayer is not worship. And I want you to hear me say that from a heart that's had to learn that the hard way. Believe it or not, pastors can play church too. I've been doing this since I was 17 years old. And you better believe that there were seasons in my life where the full measure of what my life looked like 
to worship was singing, going to church, being in a small group, and serving. And absolutely devoid of prayer. Which meant this, I didn't have a life of worship at all. I had a life that loved going to church and doing church stuff. But Daniel was a man who was devoted to prayer, was devoted to it. This is why these men devised this plan. They knew, we're going to draw this scheme up. They got in the dirt and they were drawing the play in their backyard, right? In the dirt with a stick and the go, if we do this, we got him. Because he's going to pray. God, let, let the people know that who live anywhere near me, he's going to pray. We read this story and, and listen, we know how it ends. But Daniel didn't know how it was going to end. He didn't know. Daniel's courage for defiance in this moment wasn't something he was trying to find in this moment. It was a courage that had been grown in the soil of years of discipline and devotion to prayer. This was decades and decades of prayer that was preparing him three times a day. This is what enabled him to pursue excellence in his work. This is what gave him integrity in his walk. This is what gave him faithfulness in his witness. Three times in chapter 4 and three times in chapter 5, it says that Daniel was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was in his life. Where does that come from? It comes from prayer. And the only way Daniel was able to stand in the arena of Babylon and face the den of lions with courage was because he walked in the Spirit of God through the power of prayer. When you grew up hearing the story, be like Daniel because he was courageous, we completely missed the point. We need to be like Daniel because we have calluses on our knees. Calluses on our knees from praying and pursuing God unrelentingly. That's how we're like Daniel. Pastor said this, Pastor Todd said this, I thought it was great and I wanted you to hear it. He said, your ability to stand for Jesus in power will be connected to the constancy of your kneeling before Jesus in prayer. We just need to take hold of that. <laughs> Some of you said, I need a miracle in my life. You said, you know, just, there's a, I need to see a victory. I need to see God do some things. I need to have courage in my walk. Your ability to stand for Jesus in power will be connected to the constancy of your kneeling before Jesus in prayer. We will not see God use our lives to impact the world around us without prayer. It will not happen. This is where the battle for our culture begins, continues, and ends right here. And listen, prayer has to be our first position. It can't be our last resort. It is where we go first, not when everything else we try stopped working. That's what I do. <laughs> that's, that's my rhythm. Okay, Lord, Here's the hot mess I've made from all my efforts. Please fix, right? But what would our life look like if prayer was our first position? What would that look like? Prayer for us means we have access to the very presence of God. Access to the very presence of God. And listen, Daniel wasn't afraid of the king and he wasn't afraid of the lions because he had been with the king and he had been with the lion of Judah and he had been with the Lord of the universe. And when you are in the presence of the Lord of the universe, earth has nothing more intimidating than that. 
So we get into the presence of God. We crawl to the lap of the Lion of Judah. We come to the king who sets every other little king on their throne. And when you are with him, you can walk in courage in front of any other king. And that's what Daniel did. So I want to challenge you with something. Here's a challenge. Daniel prayed three times a day, no matter what it cost him. It, was, it got super inconvenient, by the way, because he was arrested, and we're going to find out here in a minute what happened. But he prayed three times a day. My challenge is this. It's two tiers. Here's the first. For seven days, I'm going to challenge you, pray three times a day. For seven days, pray three times a day. Okay? I see none of you writing that challenge down. That doesn't make me happy, but I'm going to move on through it. Just going to, me and the Holy Spirit, we're going to work through that moment together right now. For seven days, pray three times a day. I want pray in the morning before you leave your house. Find time at midday when you have to stop and eat to spend some time with the Lord in prayer, earnest prayer, and then pray before you end your day. Three times a day, I'm going to ask you to do that for seven days. Here's the other thing I'm going to ask you to do. For one month, for four Wednesdays in a row, I'm going to challenge you to come to the prayer on Wednesday nights. For one month, four Wednesdays, come to the prayer. And I want you to hear me say this, and I mean it. If after a month of coming and praying, God isn't moving in your life and nothing meaningful is happening in that moment, great, don't come back again. But if you will... If you will do this challenge, if you will pray three times a day for seven days and you will come to the prayer four times, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find what the rest of us are finding, that we can't do without it. We can't do without it. we got to come pray. And we are finding the power of praying together. And we are finding the joy of asking God for big things and God answering those things. And we are building our faith to ask for the next big thing. And we are discovering it is actually safe to bring our burdens to Jesus. It is actually a safe thing to share our burdens with one another and just ask the God of the universe to move on our behalf. That's the challenge. Three times a day, come to the prayer for a month. And if it isn't meaningful for you, don't worry about it. Don't come back. All right. So those are the four markers that we see. Now I want you to hear me. When we stand like this, when we stand in the arena this way, there are three things we have to remember. I'm going to give these to you very quickly, but they're important. First is this. People will oppose you. When you stand in defiance and you stand in obedience, people will oppose you. Daniel's colleagues opposed him. When God raises you up, we talked about it a moment ago, people are going to try to tear you down. But I want you to hear me, believer. Adversity in the path of obedience is the greatest indicator that God is at work in your life. If you experience adversity in the path of obedience, it is an indicator that God is at work in your life. But if you have no hiccups at all, it could possibly be because you aren't in the path of obedience, you've taken the path of least resistance. And listen, I know that path. Boy, I could lead you down that path in a heartbeat because I know all the, I know exactly how to get on it and stay on it. But people will oppose when we are walking in obedience to Jesus. That's the first. Here's the second thing. Not only will people oppose you, but bless the Lord, Jesus has already delivered you. Amen. He has already delivered you. Look at the rest of the story. Start in verse 17. So 
Daniel remains faithful. He prays. The plan works. He's arrested because the king can't undo his decree. It says, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. The king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. And then at daybreak, the king rose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the lion's mouths. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar looked in and went, We threw three, but I see four. Yeah, Darius threw in one, but there were two, right? Sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And then the king was exceedingly glad, and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So he was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of the lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Here's the point. Before Daniel went into that lion's den, he was delivered. But I want you to know, God didn't deliver him from it. He delivered him through the lion's den. That 85-year-old man was still lowered down on ropes with those prowling beasts down at the bottom. There was still a rock rolled over where he couldn't get out. And he sat in the dark all night hearing their growls. They didn't, when it says the angel shut their mouth, it didn't mean he turned them into little kittens. It means they couldn't get to him. That's what it meant. And this 85-year-old man sat in the pitch black all night long hearing the growls, hearing the footsteps of the lions working circles around him, confused as to what is preventing them from destroying him. Daniel went into that thing delivered, but he had to go in. God may not pull you. He may not deliver you from the lion's den. He, dead gum may, will take you through it. I want you to hear me. Just like God delivered Daniel, Jesus has already delivered us. Jesus is the greater Daniel. He's the greater Daniel. What do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus was falsely accused. He was blameless. He was wrongfully convicted. Jesus was placed in a cave with the seal. And Jesus emerged in triumph, destroying the power of the enemy. And in his resurrection, the mouth of our enemy is closed and we are delivered. Here's what I want you to know. Daniel is the shadow. Jesus is the substance. He's the substance. Which means this. You can relent from chasing the shadow of trying to be better and just be filled with the substance of Christ. Have you been filled with Jesus? Has he changed you? Have you surrendered your life to him? I want you to hear me. There is no sin in your life that the cross hasn't already dealt with. In Jesus, you are already delivered. Here's the last thing. 
the name of Jesus is going to be glorified through you when you stand in obedience. Darius said, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in the earth. He said, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. So now another decree is going out, and here's the new one. That in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. What this world needs. When we live this way, Jesus is going to be glorified. And what this world needs to see most is people who love Jesus more than their own life. I believe right now, right now at this very moment, in East Texas, in our culture, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about right here, we have the greatest mission field we've ever had. Here's why. Because I think res- recreational Christianity is coming to an end. And bless the Lord, it just needs to go on and die. Token Christianity, incidental Christianity, recreational Christianity, that version of Christianity that just says, I go to church and I do good things, that is on life support and we need to pull the plug. Because what the world needs is not recreational Christians, it needs devoted Christians, transformed believers, filled with the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what authentic Christians, that's what God is calling us to do. So I want to ask you again, have you been filled with the person of Jesus? Has he made you new? Or would your confession be, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm recreational at this. I enjoy coming to church. Music sounds great. Uh, I like a sermon. I feel better. Community's awesome. Life groups, they feel, make me feel good. I got good friends. Has Jesus transformed your heart? You can be delivered today. You can meet the miracle worker today. That's the first thing I want you to wait. And you're the only one who can answer that. And then I want to ask you this. Have you taken that step of being a faithful witness and been baptized? Do you need to be baptized? Listen, don't minimize this step in the path of obedience with Jesus. While it doesn't save you, it is the faithful witness that tells the world, I have been saved. I've been made new. He did it. He demands it. He deserves it. And the last thing I just want to put in front of you is take the challenge, pray, and come pray with us.